That's wonderful. Thank you very much, Jenny. It's so good to be in fellowship together, and it's really good to catch up with one another and pray for one another. Uh, so important, so we know what's going on. And we bless our rowdy youth. It's wonderful to have a bit of youthful life and energy around. Amen. Good. We're doing a short summer series, and uh, it's been on the Sermon on the Mount. And you can see that from the picture there, uh, when Jesus gathered his followers together. And uh, it says in Matthew 5, verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And there's three chapters of that teaching. And if you've been in church, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with that core teaching of Jesus. And we just looked at not all of it, but a few bits. Uh, we started off a month ago with Bev looking at not judging. And she was talking about prejudices growing up in South Africa, in apartheid, and the judgments there. And uh, talked about getting to grips with our prejudices against people and how we judge people today. Very, very important. That's relevant uh, again today. Dara looks at worrying. Are you less worried, Dara? Yes, is the right answer. He's less worried. He's not worried about things tomorrow or 10 years' time because Jesus teaching us, teaches us not to worry. It comes naturally to us, but we can trust God in the face of worry. And then last week, Carol was here looking at building our lives on the rock of who Jesus is and the word of God. So all crucial stuff. Uh, and the last one we're going to look at today is to do with the subject of anger. don't know how you feel about that. A um, bit of militancy over here. They're a bit of a rowdy lot in this, this section here. I think it's the influence of Sam Corey. But uh, anyway, I want to, to, before we look at those few verses in a minute, I want to set it in context. And at the start of the whole sermon, at the start of Matthew chapter 5, there are the Beatitudes. And uh, if you've got in your Bibles or uh, on your phones or whatever, what does it say? It says, blessed are the for, yep, you're familiar with those phrases, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, those wonderful sayings of Jesus that set it in context. Now some version, how many of you got blessed in your version? Or blessed. Some versions say another word. They say the words happy. Happy are you. You move it on. And uh, the Greek word there is the word, we haven't got moss here today, but I mean, Chris has got brilliant Greek, is the word makarios. And that does actually mean happy. I remember that old, do you remember that Archbishop of Cyprus, Archbishop Makarios, Archbishop Happy? It would be lovely if all archbishops were happy. Uh, and so it is the word happy is there. And uh, what the next word is uh, a Latin word, beatitudo. So what does that mean? Beautiful. Attitude. Blessed. That means happiness. So maybe it shouldn't just be blessed, it should be happiness. And so some people have looked at the Beatitudes and said that's Jesus' theory of how to be happy. Jesus' theory of happiness. 
Maybe it is. It's good to be uh, poor in spirit and merciful. Um, Those are good qualities. And if we have them, we're happy. And someone else said it's it's kind of Jesus's recipe for good mental health. And I think there's something in that. It's Jesus prescription for good mental health. The wonderful Beatitudes. God made us. God knows how we work best. He gives us his word, and if we follow it, if we put it into practice, we can expect happiness in life. So happy are you, happy are you, happy are you, because you're hearing God's word and you're putting it into practice, and that actually does bring goodness and happiness to us if we follow and obey what God says. And uh, the great Christian leader, John Stott, pastor, teacher, author, Uh, passed away a few years ago, uh, based here in London, said this, all Christians can testify from experience that there's a close connection between holiness and happiness. If we do what God says, we can expect some happiness in our life. But lots of versions still have blessed, don't they? And maybe the the thought behind that is, um, should you be happy all the time because you're a Christian? Should you be happy all the time? Most of you don't look it. Most of you don't look it. Stefan's happy all the time, but most of you look. So people say maybe we don't put happiness because it's not so much about feelings and happiness is a kind of feeling. And if we're blessed, it's not so much how are you feeling. It's more about where are you standing, how God sees you. So God sees you as loved in Jesus. God sees you as forgiven. God sees you as his precious child. You stand in that position. So you're under God's blessing. And it's more about that objective truth than it is about how you are feeling and whether you're happy and jolly all the time. Those are some of the thoughts. So whether you're blessed or whether you're happy, God wants to work in your life. God wants to move in you. And I see the Beatitudes as the beautiful attitudes, the wonderful, beautiful attitudes of Christian character. God is looking for people that are like him, that are following his son, the wonderful Lord Jesus. And their character is being formed in a wonderful way. And those characteristics of the Beatitudes are flowing and moving in our lives. Our attitude towards God, our attitude towards other people, our thoughts and feelings, actions and reactions are modeled on Jesus. So what are the eight qualities? To be poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. And there are many ways of looking at those eight qualities, those eight beautiful attitudes. But one way of kind of running through them would be like this, and this doesn't do justice or dig deeply into the whole list. But I'm poor in spirit. I haven't got my act together in my own strength, but I realize I humbly need to come to God. I mourn. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry I'm not a better person, but I can come to God. And I mourn 
And I'm genuinely moved by the state of this world, by the evil and suffering that there is, just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I want to be meek. I want to treat other people with respect, to be gentle. I want to be humble and let other people challenge me and speak into my life. I hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to be right, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Change me. Purify me. Lord, help me to long for justice and righteousness in this world. Help me, Lord, to be merciful, having compassion towards other people and forgiving them just as you have forgiven me. And Lord, let me be a peacemaker. Let me not stand aloof from other people's problems, but let me be willing to get involved and bring peace where there's hassle and aggro and warfare. Help me to be a peacemaker in circumstances in this world. And Lord, let me be willing to accept persecution when the world attacks me because the world hated and rejected you. Help me to receive that as I stand for you. And that's one way, just very briefly, of walking through those beautiful attitudes, that Christian character that God wants to develop and express within us. And it's just good to to hear that. And the most important thing is knowing God and having Christ-like character in our lives. It's not how good you are at certain things. It's not how powerful you are. It's not how intelligent you are. It's God forming Jesus-like character in your life and my life. And that's so much what it's all about. And there are rewards to go with it. If you put the rewards up, please, Scott. You have the kingdom of heaven. Being part of God's wonderful kingdom, knowing the Holy Spirit, his life and his love. You receive comfort from him. We're going to inherit the earth. We're going to be filled with righteousness. We receive mercy. We see God and we're called children of God. So there's wonderful benefits and blessings in being people that follow the Beatitudes, that have God's beautiful attitudes in our lives. So living the Beatitudes, next please, Scott. By the grace of God, if we get hold of the kind of character and characteristics God wants in his people, we can live the Beatitudes and we will make a difference to the world. And you watch the news and you see what people are saying and you see what people are doing. And God wants to make a difference in all that mess, in all that rubbish, in all those words of anger and threats. God wants people to be salt and light into the world and really make a difference. And if God is working in our lives and we've got the beautiful attitudes and we're growing in Christian character, then we will make a difference. In many ways, the world is bad and going rotten, and it needs salt. In many ways, the world is dark, and it needs light. And if we have God working in our lives, and we're following Jesus, and he's growing good character in us, then we're going to be that salt and that light. Jesus is interested in our hearts, isn't it? It says God looks at the outward appearance Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we need to have that as priority. 
One of the little stories that came up uh, this week uh, was about President Macron in France. Vive la France. And uh, the little piece of news that, that came out is that he spends, I don't know if you picked this up this week, uh, he spends, in pu- of public money, he spends £8,000 a month on makeup for himself. In this media age, you have to look good, don't you? £8,000 a month of public funds on makeup. Apparently, President Hollande used to spend more. So, yeah, maybe you needed it more. So, yeah, President Hollande employed a full time hairdresser just for himself, and he hardly had any hair. Anyway, but man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He wants good Christian character. Let's get our values the kind of the right way round. So that's the kind of context of the little bit we're going to look at in a minute and then finish. At the end of chapter 5, before we get to, to grips with our short passage for today, it gives the kind of goal. And uh, from being sought and light, God wants us to grow up. And if you go to the end of Matthew 5, uh, the chapter we're in today, it says this at the very end, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the start of the chapter is about those beautiful attitudes, those qualities of good Christian character. And the end of the chapter says, be perfect. Those are the bookends for the verses we'll look at today. And the end game of living the Beatitudes is to put them into practice by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and be like Jesus and be like our Heavenly Father. Being perfect is a bit of a challenge. Is that a challenge? Sorry? Some Christians teach kind of sinless perfection, that you can get to a state of sinless perfection. Now, Sam's got there, but I haven't seen anyone else uh, getting to that. uh, He did point to himself. It wasn't just me picking on him. That's wonderful. But actually, if you look into that, that word perfect, it has the idea of growing up and being mature. It has the idea of reaching a goal or a target. And it's in the context of loving, showing God's love even to your enemies. So, I, I, you know, some ways that kind of idea of perfection seems very cold to me. And uh, does it mean I never make a mistake? Does it mean I'm very cold and distant and aloof and untouchable? But I actually think the, the other words about reaching the goal and about being mature are more helpful to get to grips with that meaning. It means not being childish or selfish. It means growing up. It means showing maturity. It means being generous and loving to other, expressing the warmth of who Jesus is. It's that kind of perfection. It's a maturity in life and in God. And the aim that Paul had at the bottom there, he said, we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching them with all the wisdom God's given us. We want to present everyone to God, perfect or mature in Christ. And as a leader of a group of Christians, he said the goal is that we all grow up, we become mature, we grow up in God, we leave behind childish things and we move on in life and in God and we grow up. And that's the kind of goal, that's the other bookend. And over the years, 
uh, obviously I've interacted with many, many people, walked into different situations. And you kind of want people to grow up sometimes, don't you? So uh, if you have been around, uh, you've seen people rowing and being horrible to each other, or you've seen a couple putting each other down, it feels really awkward and uncomfortable. You've seen sibling rivalry, and you're just thinking, you guys, I thought you were 39, not nine. You're just kind of siblings arguing with each other, and petty disagreements. Have you ever thought, grow up, grow up, and that's the kind of goal. God wants us to have beautiful attitudes, and God wants us to grow up and be mature in him, and we can do it. We can do it with God's help and God's Holy Spirit in our lives. So finally, we'll look at where the rubber hits the road. Uh, It's very well to to kind of know that in theory, but we need to think about it in practice in our daily lives. And we're just going to pick out one of the characteristics. Yes, do put it up, Scott, from the middle of the passage. And it's around this idea of our attitude to other people particularly about anger and insults. How do we get to grips with that if we're going to grow up in Christ and be mature? So let's, actually let's read this out together, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Okay, wonderful. Now, often in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this phrase, you've heard that it was said. That comes out on a number of occasions. He's not saying, I want to deny or overturn the Bible. That's not what he's saying. And uh, that's affirmed by Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them but to fulfill them or complete them. And Jesus affirms scripture, doesn't he? When the enemy is tempting him in the desert, he says, it is written. And he quotes God's word against Satan. So when he's saying, you've heard that it was said, he's not actually changing the Bible. He's correcting things that have been misreported as to what the Bible said and how scripture's been distorted One example of this you also find in Matthew 5, verse 43, it says, You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But did the Old Testament teach that? Is that Old Testament? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, if you go back to Leviticus, uh, you find the verse where it says, love your neighbor. And it says, love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's been added by the religious teachers, and it's wrong. And so Jesus is not so much correcting what's been said, but he's taking it to a new level, and he's taking it deeper, and he's taking it into our hearts. And this is around the Sixth Commandment. And what does the Sixth Commandment say? You shall not murder. You shall not murder. It's up there for you. You shall not murder. And that's important to say. It's very important to establish as a principle. But is it enough to say, well, I haven't murdered anyone yet, so I'm okay? 
And Jesus actually wants to take the essence of the commands and apply it in a wider and deeper way to us. And there's an issue of character. If you're angry with your brother and sister, there's a lack of the Beatitudes. There's a lack of those beautiful attitudes of Christian character in our lives. If you insult your brother or sister, you're not showing the heart of God. You're showing the ugliness of your own self. Does it mean you can never be angry? Is that right? You can never be angry? Some of the the manuscripts, I think probably the majority, say this. If anyone is angry with his brother without a good cause. But the best manuscripts don't add that bit in. But I think there's no problem with adding that in because Jesus is clearly saying the anger is is more your self-righteous anger than, than anger with without a cause. And actually, you go back to Leviticus again, Leviticus 19, 17. The verse before the one it says, love your neighbor, says this. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. And so there was an expectation for a bit of anger and rebuke. When we saw things wrong in people's lives, it's not wrong to be angry and want to correct those things. And Carol was here last week. I don't know if you were here last week. And she was talking about a Baptist minister friend. And he had an affair. And she was involved in picking up the pieces in his family and in the church. And it was very hurtful. And she felt an anger as well as wanting to bring compassion and, and healing into the situation. And Carol herself talked about her divorce. And her husband went off with her best friend and left her with two kids. And there was an anger there that's a righteous anger. And people in the the church were not very happy with what that couple had done. But also there's hope for reconciliation and working through that anger. But I think here it's definitely a wrong kind of anger because it's released in insults. And so you you feel that anger. It's not a godly anger. You're not trying, trying to correct ungodly behavior. You just want to have a real go at people. And that's clear as we read on in here. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I think the anger is manifested in insulting and despising your brother and sister. And that's wrong. Now, Raka, what does Raka mean? bit louder good for nothing any other offers fool yep it's probably the equivalent of Aramaic word meaning empty so it's kind of saying airhead numbskull blockhead nothing between your ears so it's an insult to someone's intelligence and you fool is a translation of a Greek word. We haven't got moss here. Um, it, the, the word in Greek is M-O-R-E. If I say more, it'll probably confuse you. So I'll say more. Pardon? More. More. And that means full. So don't say raka, which means full. And don't say more, which means full. Now some commentators believe that Jesus is basically saying the same thing. 
but emphasizing it twice and ratcheting up the judgment. First time, if you say you fool, you should be liable to judgment in the court. And the second time, be careful, you'd be liable to in danger of the judgment of hell. Other people think that the, the Greek word more, uh, meaning fool, is really a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning rebel or outcast, not worthy to be among God's people, an apostate person. And uh, a guy called Professor A.B. Bruce says this, Raka expresses contempt for a man's head, you stupid, while more expresses contempt for a man's heart you scoundrel so jesus could be saying if you call people raka stupid idiots you deserve to be judged yourself if you call people more worthless apostate people you're in effect saying to them go to hell and so you should be in danger of having that yourself but either way there's a severe lack of the beautiful attitudes the beatitudes we're not becoming the people God wants us to be we're not demonstrating the heart of Jesus we're not growing up or being mature and we're certainly not salt and light in the world so whatever it means it has I think it does have those ideas you think people are stupid there's nothing between their ears you think other people are worthless and outcasts and not fit to be part of the people of God you despise people and you put them down So, the rubber hits the road. Thank you, Scott. How does that work out in practice, application? Does that apply to me? Does this kind of teaching apply to me? Has it got anything to say to me these days? Where do I start? Where do I start? How about call center operators? Something's gone wrong. It's not my fault. And you go on the line. You have to listen to about 25 options. If you want this, press 1. If you want that, press 2. And when you get to the end of them, none of the options is the one that you need. Uh, Then you have to kind of enter, speak all your details onto this computer program. And then you wait half an hour, listen to terrible music. Where do they get that music from? Why does it sound so terrible? And then about half an hour later a person eventually answers and they want all your details again. And I'm like, Raka, boom, you know, I want to kill them. It's terrible. You're stupid. Why are you doing this to me? What can I do? Well, it's not good, is it? It's not good to have those attitudes. I could pray. I could read the Bible and center on Jesus before I make the call. I could find a time when I'm not so rushed. It's worse when you're kind of in a rush and you think you can sort it out and you can't. I could put myself in their shoes a bit and say, well, they've got a rubbish job. and I'm so blessed that I haven't got that job. I don't have to do it. I could feel better about them in that way. And I could think, well, this call is going to take time so I could kind of prepare myself for the session. I could make a drink and some sandwiches, have a newspaper and a book to read, and my laptop and my radio, and kind of, yeah, I'd be much happier dealing with the call. I'd, I'd kind of made the time to have that experience. And when they eventually answered, I could treat them with the respect they deserve. Now, I hope I haven't been a really, really, really bad witness too many times to call center operate. I think I have to repent. I'm very sorry, but 
I need to be a better witness. Poor people that do that job. How about other road users? That's one. Pedestrians are awful. They don't look when they cross the road. They're listening to their stupid music. They're on their phone. They walk out across the road. What are you supposed to do? Slam your brakes on, have five cards ram into the back of you just because they're wandering over the road, listening to their music and not paying attention. Pedestrians are terrible. Other drivers are terrible. They're really bad. They don't know the highway code. They can't read the speed limit signs. Boom. Other road users. Come on. I will. Actually, I, I, I once knew someone who had a kind of little computer game console on their dashboard. And when other cars were kind of, they could press buttons and pretend to be firing missiles and <laughs> rockets at all the other vehicles as they drove past it. It might have made them feel better. What can I do? Well, I could let Jesus help me with my hypocrisy. Because when I'm walking, when I'm a pedestrian, I don't care about the cars. I'm jaywalking, you know. And when I'm a driver, you know, I'm uh, not looking after the pedestrians. So I'm a hypocrite. You know, if I'm driving, the pedestrians are terrible. If I'm walking, the drivers are terrible. But I'm not a cyclist, so cyclists are always terrible. So... (laughs) I think all the cyclists have gone away this weekend. So, no, there's one there, Steve. And actually, when I was thinking about this last night, I got, did a short journey to Deptford and back, and I got stuck behind about 10 cyclists just during that one journey. And uh, actually, one, two things that really got me. One was on a pavement, and this cyclist kind of dinging their bell, telling me to get out of their way on a pavement. It's a 50-pound fine for cycling on the pavement. No one ever enforces it, do they? I, that, I didn't like that. And driving the other day, this, I was coming up to a junction, and this woman on a bike on the pavement just rode from the pavement straight across the road onto the next pavement. And if I'd come up too fast to the junction, it would have been really, really dangerous. But to equalize it out, they are wonderful people, cyclists, and they're saving the planet, and they're really, really nice. So respect. How about work colleagues? Work colleagues. <laughs> now, that's, that's obviously not a problem for me. So I work with the amazing Jenny. <laughs> and also the wonderful Sam and the adorable Dragoner there. We have a great stuff. It's not an issue for me, uh, but some of you have the boss from hell some of you have a lazy incompetent team members and you're like boom raka you numbskull more you don't deserve to be in this company maybe we should challenge people in the workplace maybe we need to maybe we're too weak at times but we got to do it respectfully not in anger or revenge and when we speak the truth Can we honestly say we're speaking the truth in love? How about family members? Are you like kind of boom? Um, When I was going out with Yvonne way back before we got married, she had this kind of prophetic friend kind of pass through. And she prayed for us. And this woman had this picture of two like pumice stones grinding each other (laughs) 
down to make them smooth. It's a wonderful prophetic picture. So I, I'm sure that I'm God's gift to Yvonne to help develop Christian character in her life. And she's obviously, she'll want to hear this today. She's scarpered and is probably doing something useful somewhere else. But family members, are we raka? Are we, you numbskull? Are we, you worthless person? Or are we showing the heart and character of Jesus in our family relationships? How about people we, that disagree with us? Boom. We want to get rid of them. We may still think they're wrong, but do we have respect for them as people? Are we humble enough in our own views to respect what other people are thinking and feeling? And in life, we don't want to kind of us and them. Pink Floyd sang a song in 1972, us and them, that kind of attitude. I'm the in crowd. I don't like you. You're outcasts. It's us and them. Or are we treating everyone with the respect that they're due, regardless of whether they agree with us or not. That's a real challenge, isn't it? I think it's a challenge just coming towards the end now. In the internet age, I think the internet's empowered a lot of people to put their views out there. Uh, Before, lots of us wouldn't have had the opportunity to say things or we'd be too timid to go up to someone in person and say what we thought. But now there's cyberbullying, there are internet trolls, there are politicians getting death threats, every day of the week and online you can really react in anger can't you or even if you're not intending to be that way people can't get the tone of what you've typed so you might have even meant it reasonably but people read it as harsh and condemning and you need to be really careful and prayerful in how you write and the nuance of it and the way you express yourself online in email or facebook or whatever what can we do We can have beautiful attitudes in our lives. We can respect people. We can listen to Jesus' teaching here. We can be slow to anger. Most of the time, I've kind of reacted quickly. I've got it wrong. Most of the time. If I hold back and think and pray and reserve my judgments and let God speak into my life, I can come out with something useful somewhere down the line and not insult and hurt and rubbish other people it's a real challenge let's ask for more of the grace of god to work in our lives it's so important because character is so important and it's so important because christians need to be those people that have beautiful attitudes to be salt and light in the world and it's really important in our fellowship life And in our witness to the world. If you read some of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he's writing to churches and he's appealing them to them to stop arguing, stop scrapping with each other. We need to get on as church so we can show that there's love here that's an answer to the pain in the world. We need to not be those people that are despising, putting people down, disrespecting people. But people with the heart and character of Jesus so the church can work together. And the beautiful attitudes we develop together can be a wonderful witness in the world. And finally, that last uh, part of the passage, please, Scott. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And this is saying that 
the ceremony of worship is less important than the reality of relationships that we're in and the way we treat other people, the way we act and speak. Thinking about exactly what this means, I don't think you can totally control what other people think of you or what they say about you. You can't put all those things right. And uh, it says in the New Testament, be at peace with people as far as you are able. You can't make people like you or feel good towards you. But what I take this to mean is something like this. I've come to worship and I realize that I've genuinely hurt someone. I've said the wrong thing. I've done the wrong thing. I've messed up. And when I do that, I know I'm in the wrong. And it's saying if you're like that and you come to worship and you realize it, it's more important that you get reconciled than you look good in church. So go away, apologize for what you know you've done wrong, try and be reconciled, and then come back and worship because it's vital to guard fellowship so that we can add fuel to our witness to the world. That's absolutely vital. Now we've got to work all this out. It's not just a case of trying harder in our own strength. It's looking to the example of Jesus. It's looking into the teaching of Jesus. It's relying on the grace of God. It's being poor in spirit. I haven't got my act together. I need you, Lord. But it's being really committed to wanting Jesus to work by the Holy Spirit in our lives to develop good attitudes in us that will be a wonderful blessing and a witness to the people around us. Let's just finish by praying. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. We thank you for your example. Wonderful Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. And Lord, we know that the world will be a a very different place if people treated each other with honor and respect, if we didn't think other people were stupid or were of bad character, but we treated their intellects and their hearts and their life with respect. And Lord, we've taken the bread and wine. We've celebrated your forgiveness of us. And Lord, we ask you to convict us now for things that we've thought and said and done in the last week that have been wrong and judgmental in the wrong way and full of anger. Lord, I ask you to forgive me and to forgive us for those times this week. And Lord, we ask you to work in our lives to make us bigger people that are more like you and able to be people with beautiful attitudes that really touch the hearts of people around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.